Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, the weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Questions Not Answered. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, September 25th, 2011. Some aspects of Jesus resemble the crazy uncle syndrome. Your crazy uncle is family. He's a nice guy. But just being in the same room with him makes you justifiably nervous. What will he say or do next? It's unpredictable. What taboo will he transgress? What faux pas will he commit? Doesn't he know that he makes people feel uncomfortable? Some scholars say that if we could get behind the post-Easter Christ of faith and discover the authentic pre-Easter Jesus of history, that he'd make more sense to us no, I agree with the historian Gary Wills that if we knew more about the historical Jesus, he would seem more rather than less mysterious. The more difficult or unusual a gospel reading is, the more likely it's authentic and original. And the problematic aspects haven't been simplified, harmonized, or sanitized by later well-meaning copyists. We're all tempted to straitjacket the crazy Uncle Jesus to fashion him in our own image and after our own likeness. Thomas Jefferson's scissored down Jesus is a mild male moralizer guaranteed not to offend Enlightenment rationalism. Warner Solomon's portrait of Jesus flowing with blonde hair and saccharine blue eyes from 1940 looks like he wouldn't hurt a flea. It's disconcerting to read books like Stephen Prothero's American Jesus or Richard Fox's Jesus in America and discover our many malleable Jesuses who only faintly, faintly resemble the genuine article. The Gospel this week is a case in point. Trouble begins with the so-called cleansing of the temple, a delicate euphemism for the only violent act of Jesus. The story occurs in all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke place the story at the end of Jesus' ministry, after his triumphal entry and before the parable of the tenants. John places the story at the very beginning of his Gospel. It's an unnerving story that reminds us that there's no business as usual with Jesus, and that all who come to him must do so on his terms, not ours. When Jesus entered the temple, he encountered people selling cattle, sheep, and doves to the pilgrims who needed them to make their obligatory sacrifices. They also needed to exchange their Roman currency into Jewish money in order to pay the temple tax in the coinage of the sanctuary shekel. And so he also met the money changers. A bustling nexus of commercial activity, crowds of worshipers, nationalist aspirations, political identity, historical memory, architectural splendor, and of course, religious affiliation, the temple constituted the essence of Jewish faith, both in literal and symbolic ways. At some point, all hell broke loose. Instead, in, incensed at the sacrifice of it all, Jesus improvised a whip, thrashed the animals from the temple, scattered the coffers of the money changers, and overturn their tables. 
How dare you turn my father's house into a market? Later, his disciples remembered Psalm 69, verse 9, and attached a sense of prophetic fulfillment to the event. Zeal for your house will consume me. It's not clear whether Jesus objected to any and all commercial activity in the temple, even honest transactions that were necessary for pilgrims to fulfill their religious obligations, or whether he excoriated the fraud, exploitation, and avarice of the religious authorities who controlled the means of ritual purity. When asked to justify his violent actions with the sign, Jesus, Jesus refused. <clears throat> Instead of any interpretation, justification, or explanation, he responded with an enigmatic saying, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Long after the event, his disciples interpreted Jesus' dark saying as a prediction of his death and resurrection. Jesus joined a violent act with an enigmatic saying that has elicited several layers of interpretation. A few people see a prophetic prediction of the destruction of the temple that occurred in 70 A.D., a simpler interpretation understands the story as a purification of the temple to its sacred purpose, as a place of prayer for all people, without manipulation or exploitation by the establishment gatekeepers. A third nuance suggests that in his own physical body, Jesus fulfills all the functions of the temple building as the place to meet God. No doubt the disciples tossed and turned a long, sleepless night that evening. It must have been terribly disconcerting to witness Jesus unhinged, throwing furniture, screaming at the top of his lungs, and flinging money into the air. Perhaps they ran for cover with the crowd. I know I would have. Did they look him in the eyes the next morning or shuffle their feet, stare at the ground, and make small talk? The cleansing of the temple is a stark warning against any and every false sense of security. Misplaced allegiances, religious presumption, pathetic excuses, smug self-satisfaction, spiritual complacency, nationalist zeal, political idolatry, and economic greed in the name of God are only some of the tables that Jesus would overturn in his own day and in ours. Church is more than a place to enjoy a night of bingo or to reinforce my prejudices and illusions. The next day, the religious leaders confronted Jesus in those same temple courts. By what authority are you doing these things? It's an honest question. We shouldn't be too hard on the religious bureaucrats. They were just doing their job keeping the peace, trying to figure things out, and maintain the status quo. It's quite natural for authorities to question a boundary breaker like Jesus. But just like the previous day, Jesus answered their question with his own question. Was John's baptism truly divine or merely human? This trapped the temple teachers. If they said it was merely human, they feared reprisals from the crowds. And if they admitted that John's baptism was from God, 
then they had no excuse for not accepting it and repenting. They were caught between fear and disobedience. And so Jesus didn't answer their question. Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And when you think about it, neither does Jesus answer our own questions today, many of which are also honest questions. Why can't I get a job after two years of unemployment? Why do millions die by starvation in Somalia? What is prayer? Instead of answering questions, Jesus tells a story. A lazy son refused to work, but then changed his mind and obeyed his father's request. His brother did the opposite. He promised to work, but then didn't. Jesus compared the temple authorities to the latter son. They made bold claims, but did little. Tax collectors and prostitutes, said Jesus, would enter the kingdom of God before them because they promised nothing, but nevertheless believed John's message of invitation and indictment. Terence Malick's new film, The Tree of Life, depicts our human struggle to squeeze meaning out of life in a cosmos that is beautiful, terrifying, and, like the gospel this week, full of honest questions. A recurring flame in the movie symbolizes what A.O. Scott of the New York Times calls an elusive deity who is both the film's overt subject and the source of its deepest, most anxious mysteries. To explore these questions, Malik focuses on one family in Waco, Texas, where, in fact, Malik was born. The O'Briens are a young couple with three boys who experience the gift of life with all its joys and sorrows. The father is deeply devoted to his family, but understandably scary to his children. He's known vocational disappointment, financial reversal, deep regrets, and feelings of failure. The mother observes that we all have a choice to live, as she says, by nature or by grace. To live by grace means we'll never be disappointed, no matter how many questions go unanswered. To live by nature means we'll never know happiness, no matter how great our gain. Like the cleansing of the temple and the questioning of Jesus' authority, the tree of life begins with a question of its own, a quotation from Job 38.4 that's a divine question instead of an answer. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you understand. And then two hours later, the film ends with a voiceover prayer. Help us. Guide us till the end of time. After a long pause that leaves many unanswered questions, this prayer is followed by a cosmic response. Follow me. For books this week, I review Alan Jacobs. The title, The Pleasures of Reading in an Age of Distraction. Oxford, Oxford University Press, 2011. The book is 162 pages. When my wife was a little girl, her family enjoyed an evening ritual. 
While her mother washed the dishes, her father read out loud to the family. Our own children inherited this legacy. I'm sure my wife read aloud hundreds of books to our three children. Yes, we read Tolkien's trilogy and C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, both multiple times, but we also read Harry Potter and the Hardy Boys, which is to say we read because it was fun. Our kids would argue to read their book aloud, since it was not unusual to have a couple books going at the same time. Then there was the neighborhood mother-daughter book club that began in the third grade, enjoyed a nine-year run, and then morphed into the Mothers of Daughters book club when the girls left for college. People read for many reasons, observes Alan Jacobs. Some people read to impress others or to gain their approval. Others read to glean information. And still others read when they think... Well, Still others read what they think are important books that experts have said will make them a better person. The best, best reason to read, though, says Alan Jacobs, is for the joy and pleasure it brings. Reading has some utilitarian ends, at least some of the time, but better yet is reading for its own sake, as an end in itself. Jacobs is an intellectual and professor of English, but when it comes to reading, he's an egalitarian rather than an elitist. He too likes Harry Potter. He describes himself as a proud and happy Kindle owner. He knows what it's like to be distracted from reading by 140-character Twitter texts and addiction to email. But he also reflects in this book on how and why we read, including things like note-taking, the relationship between the solitary act of reading and social connectedness. Reading slowly. Reading with critical interaction. Rereading favorite books. Falling in and out of love with a certain title. And tips for deepening your joy of reading. So, follow your whim and pick up a book, says Alan Jacobs. Not whims in the sense of aimless desire, but rather what you know gives you joy, whether that's a title from Oprah's Book Club or a family favorite from yesteryear. The author is Alan Jacobs. The title, The Pleasures of Reading in an Age of Distraction. For film this week, we go to Denmark, the title of the movie, In a Better World, from the year 2010. In a Better World won the 2011 Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film, but that has not prevented a number of negative reviews by critics. There are so many different storylines going on that it's not clear exactly what Danish director Suzanne Beer had in mind. Perhaps third world poverty in Africa, where Anton is a doctor in a refugee camp? Or maybe violence back in affluent Denmark, where Anton's son is being bullied at school? This much is clear. Two families randomly collide in ways they could not have imagined. All six characters in these two families have their own problems, so any one of them might have been the focus of the film. But that's not what you get.
Two sons and two fathers work out deep emotional traumas that are rooted in their troubled family matrices. Everyone struggles with the dark impulses of internalized loss, fear, rage, and revenge. The film is in English, Danish, and some Swedish, with English subtitles. In a Better World, from Denmark. And for poetry this week, we've posted a poem by Mary Oliver. Mary Oliver was born in 1935. Her numerous awards include the National Book Award and the Pulitzer Prize. With 30 books to her credit, the New York Times has described her as, quote, far and away this country's best-selling poet. The title of her poem, The Summer Day. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean. The one who has flung herself out of the grass. The one who was eating sugar out of my hand. Who was moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down. Who was gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? The Summer Day by poet Mary Oliver. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, September 25th, 2011. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.